last week I listened to a sermon by a fellow that's one of my modern heroes of the Christian faith. His name is Francis Chan, and he he told a, about a shift that's happened in our culture. And he said that there was a time in, in, the, in, in the world where the Bible was held way up here, and everything else was held below it. And over time, what has happened is there's been a shift to things have been elevated over it. And, and primarily, he said, it's, it's our feelings. Right? It started out where the Bible was right, and it really didn't matter how we felt about that. The Bible was right, and if my, my feelings were hurt, then I needed to bring my feelings into conformity to Scripture. If my, my thought process was wrong, I needed to bring that into conformity to Scripture. But what's begun to happen is that people began to say, well, Okay, to say that's a sin, that, that hurts my feelings, and, and so I want to bring it up here. Or, or God God being great and awesome and, and the fear of the Lord, I just don't like the idea of a God that is fearful and awesome and that might judge me. And hell, oh mercy, just the thought of hell is a terrifying concept. No, no, no. And so what we've done is now we've got our, our feelings way up here, and we've got the Bible way down here. And so what has happened is we believe the Bible so long as it doesn't hurt our feelings. We believe the Bible so long as it doesn't challenge what makes me feel comfortable. We, we like the Bible so long as it doesn't contradict the way I think naturally on my own. Now, Chan is exactly right. That is exactly what has happened in our culture. But we're wrong if we think that he's talking about the culture out there. right? Because the, the issue isn't how the culture out there views the Bible. The issue is how the culture in here views the Bible. Right? The, the problem isn't that the culture has lowered the Bible. The problem is that the church has lowered the authority of the Bible. Much of what's wrong in our current American Christian culture, it comes from this shift. Right? It comes from lowering the Bible from being the authority and elevating other things over the top of it. Now, we're talking about revival. There will be no revival so long as our feelings trump Scripture. Now, there will be no revival so long as what makes me feel comfortable will trump Scripture. There will be no revival in me as a person. There will be no revival in us as a church so long as we elevate anything else over Scripture. Because what happens is, Revival brings change. Revival forces us to confront sin and apathy and complacency and our view of God and the lostness of our neighbors and the people around us. But when we elevate other things over Scripture, what happens is I'm willing to change so long as I don't have to be uncomfortable. I'm willing to change so long as you don't tell me something that would hurt my feelings. Right? I don't have to worry about evangelizing my lost friends and relatives because they're not going to hell. Because golly, I just think a good God would not send people to hell. They sure seem like good people. I bet they'll go to heaven. Revival is a, a radical shift in everything. One person says this about revival. He said, true revival is nothing less than a revolution. Casting out the spirit of worldliness and selfishness and making God and His love triumph in the heart and life. What kind of radical change does revival, does God bring in our life? And how can we know if we have experienced this in our lives? That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to Ezekiel 36. It should be on page 655 in your pew Bibles. When you find it, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word.
going to look at verses Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. God says, And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols, and I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give to you, and a new spirit will I put within you. Take away the stony heart of your flesh, and I will put a, put, give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall keep my judgments and do them. The title of the message this morning is Check Your Heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come this morning, Father, with a desire to hear from you. Lord, my words are pretty meaningless. My words are pretty ineffective. But God, to hear from you, have your spirit take your word and and give it new life and and make it living and active to, to cut us, to open us, to help us to see where we are and who we are in our relationship with you. Father, your word is clear that when we come to Jesus, we are changed forever, radically changed. And yet, Lord, we see so much in our day people who profess faith in Jesus and are exactly the same as they always were. Father, today let your word be like a mirror that would examine us. Let your spirit take us and point out spots in our life that aren't as they should be. And let us be bothered by it. Father, make us bothered over the sin and the apathy and the complacency that we often see in our own lives. Father, help us to be concerned about the lostness of those around us, the apathy of those around us. Help us to move beyond a people who live in a me-focused world where it's all about me and me and me, and even if it's just me and you. But Lord, a, a we, we see in the Bible that we are a family. We're meant to be concerned and care and active in one another's life. So move us beyond me to we. Help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Fill me today with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to know your will. Help me to speak what you once said. Have your way in all of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the prophet Ezekiel served during a time when Israel was far from God, as is often the case. He was raised to be a priest, but he was carried away to Babylon during the time just before the final assault on Jerusalem. Sometime after going to Babylon, God called him to be a prophet. Um, And at first, his message was pretty much negative, right? His message was, God has brought this punishment, but it's not over. There's going to be more. There's going to be more to the point that Jerusalem is completely destroyed. The people, of course, did not like that message, and Ezekiel was not a terribly popular guy. Well, after his prophecies came true and Jerusalem was destroyed, his message changed. It was one of restoration. It was one of comfort and hope as opposed to just the coming judgment. It was kind of the worst is gone, and now it's time to start making plans for a fresh beginning. And in this time of encouragement, God gives Ezekiel the message that we're looking at today. And in this message, God tells the people that He is going to make changes in them. There will come a time where He will cleanse them and change them completely. Right? Look at verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols, and I will cleanse you. But now, this is an allusion to the many washings and sprinklings required under Old Testament ceremonial cleansing. Um, And and while this was an Old Testament allusion to something, there was also a greater reality God was giving them a truth in. He was letting them know what would happen when Jesus came. He was telling them that there would be a time when they would go from being ceremonially clean to being legitimately clean. That they would go from being just washed with water to washed in the Spirit. And in John chapter 3, what I read at the start of service about being born again, that's a, a part of the fulfillment of this. We could look at Titus chapter 3 about the washing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews speaks often 
about this idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was kind of pointing to. So God isn't talking about a day when he will wash them with physical water and they will be cleansed. He's talking about a day when he will be washed in the spirit and they will be legitimately cleansed. That the idols and the filth and all of that will be truly taken away from them. It's a prophecy of the new covenant God would make through Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. So you and I, we are living in the time after the fulfillment of this. So all of the changes that we're going to look at today that that God gives and says this is what's going to happen. All of these changes should be in us. Right? We aren't waiting for the day when God will give us a new heart. We aren't waiting for the day when God will give us a new spirit. If we are children of God, if we have been saved, we have a new heart. We have a new spirit. These changes have already taken place in us. But notice the changes God talks about, they're not circumstantial changes. They're not ceremonial changes. These are deep, legitimate changes. I will give you a new heart. I will take away a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit within you and it will compel you to live and act differently. These are changes in the very core of our being of who we are and how we live. These changes will affect our values, our priorities, our attitudes, our actions, our reactions, our speech, how we live and what we do in every aspect of our lives. These are real and lasting, deep, legitimate changes that come just because of the work and the will of God in our lives. The reality is everything changes when we come to Jesus, right? Because Jesus changes my heart. And when Jesus changes my heart, this changes my life. Everything changes about us when we come to Jesus. Jesus changes my heart and this changes my life. Now we do see in verse 26 the the contrast between the heart of stone and a heart of flesh. A heart of stone would picture a heart hard toward God. Hard toward the things of God. a, A heart that was unconcerned about the will and the word and the want of God for their life. While a a heart of flesh would picture a heart tender toward the will and the want and the word of God. A heart that desired to do God's will in their lives. A heart of stone would picture a spiritually dead heart. A heart where there was only death that reigned. Whereas a heart of flesh would picture a heart of life that had been given spiritual life. That new and spiritual life that God gives us when we come to Christ. The difference between these two hearts is critical. It's critical because the heart is very important to who we are in Scripture. Uh, Scripture says, as water, as in water, face answers to face, so the heart of man to man. If you don't know what you look like, you look in the mirror. Check out a mirror and you, you're able to see who you, what you look like on the outside. And if you want to know what you're like, you check your heart. Because your heart is the greatest revelation of who you actually are. Nothing reveals who we are like our hearts. Now, here's where it gets challenging. Because the most common refrain we hear in our day is, you can't judge my heart. Anybody ever heard that? You ever heard? You can't judge somebody's heart. But I wonder, is that true? Can we judge somebody's heart? Well, let's see what Jesus says. Jesus says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, 
The mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure, and we could insert of his heart, bringeth forth evil things. So according to Jesus, a good person out of the good treasure of their heart will bring forth good things. And an evil person out of the evil treasure of their heart will bring forth evil things. And in this case, he particularly covers speech. So if we were to go to Scripture and see what it had to say about how we talk, we would see Scripture discusses things like profanity. right? It discusses the kind of words that we use. Scripture would discuss gossip. right? Scripture mentions gossip a lot. Scripture would talk about bad-mouthing others, running other people down, judging them. Scripture would talk about using vulgar or profane jokes or stories and telling those. Scripture would talk about lying. Scripture would talk about abusive language where we we beat others down with our words. Scripture would also talk about saying things about God which aren't true. Right? It could be a a false teaching, thus saith the Lord, God showed me this new revelation. But it could also be one of those things where we say, well, you know, I, I know that the Bible says this is wrong, but I really think God has given me peace about living in this way. Or it could be saying things about God that's simply not true. Here's what God is like. And what I'm saying God is like is very contrary to Scripture. And there's probably more, but those are the big ones that we see most often in Scripture. So the question is, if we look at a person's life, and we, and we see that they consistently use profanity, does that tell us something about their heart? If we look at a person's life and they consistently gossip, does that tell us something about their, life, about their heart? If we look at a person's life and they consistently badmouth others, does that reveal something about their heart? If you look at a person's life and they tell vulgar or profane stories and jokes, does that tell us something about the condition of their heart? If you look at a person's life and they consistently lie, does that reveal something about their heart? If you look at someone's life, And they are consistently verbally abusive to others. Does that reveal something about their heart? Someone says with their mouth things about God that aren't true. Things like, God is okay with this sin when Scripture says He isn't. Does that reveal something about their heart? Someone says, God would never send anyone to hell. God's just too loving for that. Does that reveal something about their heart? Someone says God has given them peace about living in sin. Does that reveal something about their heart? Yes. According to Jesus, it reveals that those evil words flow from an evil heart. Now, some will push back and say, well, that is judgment. But it's not. That is just taking the words of Jesus at face Value. That is just saying Jesus is a master communicator and he is able to say what he means and mean what he says. And if we want to push back and say, no, that's not always the case, then guess what we're doing? We're elevating feelings above Scripture. I don't feel that's true. That makes me sad. That makes me unhappy. That makes me feel bad about the way I talk. Then what we're doing is we are elevating our feelings over what Jesus has said. Now lest you say, well, I'm taking Jesus' words too seriously. 
too literally. Let me show you what else Jesus says about our words. But I say to you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Have you ever thought about the idea that we will give an account for every word that we have spoken on the day of judgment? But not just give an account for our words, but our words are enough to reveal whether or not we are justified or condemned. Now this isn't revealing salvation by right talking. This is teaching that our words are such an accurate reflection of our heart that they reveal our spiritual condition. So imagine all your words are recorded. And when I say all your words, I mean the words you speak in public that everyone hears. And I mean the words you speak to your spouse in private that no one but them hears. I mean the words that you whisper to your best friend, the words that you text to others, and the words that you mutter under your breath. All of those are the words that we speak. Now imagine all of those words are recorded and played back according to Jesus. According to Jesus. That recording and those words would accurately reflect our heart and would reveal whether or not we had actually been born again. It's pretty bold. It's pretty straightforward. So what do your words reveal about your heart? Because words matter. But when we look at Scripture, it's not just our words that reveal our heart. It's our actions as well. Jesus says, That which cometh out of the man, that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and again out of the heart and defile the man. Jesus gives this list of the sins and he calls them defiling sins. They defile because they come out of our heart. They flow out of our heart, out of the abundance of the heart. These things come just as much as our words. So just kind of quickly run down to them. Evil thoughts. The Greek word translated for evil is also translated as grievous, harmful, malicious, or lewd. So it would be anything, whether I'm thinking bad thoughts about people, whether it be sexual or hateful or I want them to die type of thoughts. Adultery. Any sort of sexual immorality outside the bonds of marriage, particularly in this case being unfaithful to your spouse. Fornication is any sexual immorality or any sexual action outside the bonds of marriage, uh, whether you're married or not. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tightens this up. And he says the, the spirit behind the physical act of adultery is um, lustful thoughts. So it would be fornication, adultery, it would be lust, it would be pornography. All of those things would fit in fornication. Murder is wrongfully taking the life of another person. But again, if we go to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say that the spirit behind the law against murder is unjustified anger. So it would be being angry without cause. It would be a kind of anger that leads me to treat people with contempt uh, and wish harmful things or bad things upon them. Thefts is just taking things that don't belong to us. Covetousness is a, uh, a consuming desire to have more. Covetousness would cover everything from money to fame to power to sex, success, promotion and stuff. It would cover anything. If I have a consuming desire to have more of anything, I can be covetousness covetous toward that. And, and Paul will say in Colossians that covetousness is idolatry. Pretty much um, 
Wickedness. The word wickedness seems to focus mostly on doing harmful things to others. It is malice, hatred, and to seek to do harm to others. Deceit. It means to bait someone or to lead them into a trap. So it is to mislead someone by twisting the truth in an effort to influence them to do something. Lasciviousness. The word lasciviousness, it's a general word to describe all sorts of moral uncleanness, but it also describes the attitude toward the moral uncleanness. So the lascivious person not only acts in sinful ways, the lascivious person is not ashamed of their sin. The lascivious person is not bothered by their sin, whatever their sin is. An evil eye. An evil eye is an eye that lusts for what it doesn't have. And it, it seems to carry with the idea of covetousness and jealousy. So it's not only I want what you have that I don't have, but I'm kind of mad at you that you have what I want. But it, it makes me bitter and angry toward the person. Blasphemy. Blasphemy there really doesn't refer to blaspheming God as much as it refers to blaspheming people. Basically it refers to slander. Now, this is doing harm to another person's reputation by spreading gossip, lies, or rumors about them. And let's be honest that slander in this case does not have to be intentional. Right? If someone tells me something bad about Scott, and I think it's true, and I go tell it, and it turns out not to be true, does the fact that I didn't mean to harm his reputation, does that matter? Is his reputation unharmed because I didn't mean it? Of course not. So that means if I'm sharing something about someone that's not true, that is an effort to harm their reputation, it doesn't have to be a real thing. If it's a lie, if it is a made up fake news and I'm sharing it, it is still slander. Pride, self-exaltation, conceit or arrogance that causes us to consider ourselves as better than others. Foolishness. The most common idea with foolishness is that of thoughtlessness. So someone who thinks or speaks without thinking is foolish. Someone who acts without thinking is foolish. Someone who doesn't think about the consequences of their actions is foolish. Someone who is thoughtless regarding their their morals or their duties or their behavior is foolish. Now we know this is not a complete list. We could look at Galatians um, 5, 19 through 21 about the works of the flesh. We could look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 12 about the unrighteousness that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we would see similar lists. But the picture is always the same. The picture is, do can we look at someone's life and see these things in there and, and know something about their heart? I mean, do these actions in a person's life, do they reveal something about their heart? Yes. It reveals a defiled heart. It reveals an evil heart. It reveals a sinful heart. And that reveals their spiritual condition. So can I judge someone's heart? Yes. Yes, the life and the words reveal the heart. So for someone to say, well, I don't live for Jesus in any noticeable way... But I believe in my heart and you can't judge my heart. That is a foolish, foolish statement. Because no matter what we say with our mouth about how much we believe in Jesus, what comes out in our lives and consistently in our mouths reveals much more than anything else. A life filled with defiling sins, the works of the flesh, and the works of unrighteousness reveal an unregenerate, hard, stony heart. 
And such a person needs to be born again. Always. Those sort of sins consistently in our lives are more than, well, I'm just not perfect yet. They are the consistent symptom of lostness, of unregeneration, of a person who is condemned in their life. And if my heart reveals these things, I had better be concerned about it right now. And if your heart reveals these things, you'd better be concerned about it right now. And if your loved one's heart reveals these things, you had better be concerned about it right now. Because me telling you you're saved, if that's what's in your life, doesn't save you. You're still lost. You telling me I'm saved when that's what's in my life doesn't save me. I'm still lost. Me believing my loved one is saved despite that being in their life doesn't make them saved. They are still lost. We had better take seriously what is revealed in their lives about their heart and their spiritual condition. Now if that's what's in a a hard heart, a stony heart, a dead heart, what would a new heart look like? A a new heart is a, a pure heart. Again, that would make sense in light of the defilement. These sins defile. So when Jesus gives us a new heart, it is a pure heart. Jesus affirms this by saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word for pure is used in several different ways. And um, each of these ways gives us insight into what Jesus meant by pure. Originally, it simply meant clean. And could also be used to describe dirty clothes which had been washed and cleaned. It was also used to describe an army which had been purged of all the discontented, the cowardly, the unwilling, and the ineffective soldiers. So it was composed of fighting men, totally dedicated to the job at hand. It was also paired with another Greek adjective to describe wine, which had not been mixed with water, or metal that had not been mixed with any sort of impurity. So we could say that a pure heart is a heart that has been cleansed, again, from what? From filthiness, from idols, And cleanse, a heart that has been cleansed and has an undivided devotion to Jesus. Now, even a casual reading of Scripture reveals to us there's a very real emphasis on purity in the Christian life. That it's it's an essential. Be holy for I am holy. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness, purity, deeply important in the Christian life. But why? The reason is that purity is what enables us to enjoy God. John says in 1 John 1 that if that Jesus is light and in Him is no darkness at all, and if we are walking in darkness but savor in the light, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. The reality is Jesus is light and pure Sin is darkness. I cannot walk in the darkness of sin and with Jesus at the same time. The reason I long for purity, the reason the born again long for purity, isn't so that we can set up a set of self-righteousness and say, well, look, I'm better than Scott. Look, look at this, I'm so much better than him, clearly. Scott's not even in focus in in my desire for purity. My desire for purity is so that I can be closer to God. I, I know that Isaiah says... That God's arm is not shortened. His hand is not weakened. But sin has separated you from your God. 
I know that I can't walk with Jesus and in sin at the same time. And so my desire is to get everything out of my life that would be a barrier between me and my relationship with Christ. See, for those who are lost, holiness sounds like legalism. Holiness sounds like a burden to be born. Holiness sounds like a, a, a thing that's the end of joy and peace and happiness in life. But for the born again, holiness is a deep longing of the heart because holiness enables me to walk with God. Holiness enables me to be close to Jesus. Holiness isn't the path to the loss of joy. Holiness is the path to the increase of joy. Because in His presence there is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. The born again person longs for purity of life because they long to be closer to Jesus than they are right now. Their heart's desire is always more of God, more of Jesus. The born again don't wonder how much can I sin and still go to heaven. The born again don't wonder how close can I get to the edge of hell before I fall in. The born again wonder how close can I get to God? How pure can I really be? How much can I get to where I walk with God always and only forever? And notice the importance of purity of heart. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. But what if our hearts are not pure? Does it mean that we will see God and go to heaven, but we'll live in the suburbs and not in the streets of gold and in the the other things? Clearly that's not what it means. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Woe to the impure in heart, for they shall... Not see God. Again, Hebrews 12 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Pure in heart is the difference between heaven and hell, salvation and lostness. Born again and and not being born again. A stony heart and a heart of flesh. Is my heart pure and being purified? Is my longing for more holiness to get more sin out of my life? Am I longing to see how much sin I can live in and still be Christian, still go to heaven? Make no mistake, those two desires reveal a great deal about our spiritual condition. A new heart is a pure heart. A new heart is also an obedient heart. Look at what God says in verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. When we begin with a new heart, we'll walk in God's statutes. We will keep His judgments and we will do them. That is nothing less than just plain and simple obedience to God's will and God's Word. Again, obedience in our day has taken a big hit. It's become a synonym for legalism. But is that what the Bible reveals? Does the Bible teach obedience is legalism? Does the Bible teach if I strive for obedience in my life, That I'm trying to set up my own righteousness. Does the Bible teach that if I'm under grace, I don't have to do anything. I can just live however I want to. And obedience to God is not important. Well, let's see what the Bible says. Hereby do we know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments. So how can I be sure that I know God? I keep His commandments. But, But this isn't it. There's more. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. 
And the truth is not in him. That's a pretty straightforward, hard statement. So if I say, I'm a Christian. I know God. And yet, I don't keep his commandments. I I do do what I want, rather than what God wants. According to John, not, not me. According to John, I'm lying. And what am I lying about? I'm lying about knowing God. How do you know I'm lying about knowing God? Because I keep not his commandments. And so, what that means is the truth is not in me. What does it mean that the truth is not in me? It means I'm not saved. So a person who lives in sin and rebellion against God's will and God's word and says they know Him, they are lying to themselves, they are lying to others, and the truth is not in they are not born again. They still have a hard heart of stone. They have not been changed by Jesus. But there's more. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. So how can I know that I'm in God when God's love is perfected in me? And I'm just aware of the fact that God truly and deeply and genuinely loves me. How is the love of God going to be perfected in me as I keep his commandments? So obedience, my love-based obedience to God It gives me assurance that I'm saved. And one more. He that saith he abideth in him. Ought himself also to walk even as he walked. If I'm going to claim to be in Christ. I'm going to claim to be saved. And I'll live like Jesus lived. How did Jesus live? Well, The Bible says. Jesus. Did the will of the Father. Jesus said. I always do those things that please my Father. So if I'm going to claim to be in Christ, then what am I supposed to do? Always do those things that please my Father. And there is nothing that we will do that will please Him more than obedience. There's much more we could look at. We could go to John 14 where Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. He that keepeth my commandments is he that loves me. He that doesn't keep my commandments does not love me. I mean, the Bible is so very clear. I don't obey Jesus. I don't love Jesus. If I don't love Jesus, I've not been saved by Jesus. If I don't obey Jesus, I'm not saved. If there is nothing within me, if there's nothing within you that says I ought to do what the Bible says, I'm not saved. And neither are you. There, there is something. Because look at the wording in, in, in Ezekiel. I, I will put my spirit within you and cause you, right? And the the implication is the spirit that he puts within us, it causes us, it leads us, it makes us desire to do the will of God. And if there is nothing in me, nothing in you that desires to do the will of God, it's not because we're under grace and not law. It's because we've never been born again. It is because My heart is still stone instead of flesh. And I have a a dead spirit instead of a living spirit within me. Make no mistake. Our desires about obedience, our actions of obedience, say much about the spiritual condition of our lives. And I... This isn't to say we don't sin. We don't blow it. But in those times, we will be broken 
over our sin. I heard someone say once that the main difference, one of the main differences between a believer and an unbeliever isn't always in how much they sin, but in their attitude towards that sin. A believer who sins will take the side of God's Word and God's Spirit against that sin. The believer who sins will say, I was wrong, and this is right. The unbeliever who sins will say, well, I see what that says, but I mean, the world is different now. But I really feel peace with God. But this makes me feel happy. What you're saying hurts my feelings. You see, the unbeliever always takes the side of their sin against God and His Word and His Spirit. So believers with an obedient heart, they will fail. But that failure, that sin bothers them deeply. It grieves them to the core of their being. It leads to repentance and faith. It removes justification and excuses. Sin. There is no grief. There is no repentance. There is nothing but excuses and explanations and reasons. It absolutely reveals something. It reveals a hard heart. A stony heart. A spiritually dead heart. But there is no new heart, there is no new birth. And where there is no new birth, there is no salvation. No one enters the kingdom of God unless he is born again. What does your heart, what does your life reveal about your heart? Your words. Think about the words you have spoken this week leading up to today. What do your words reveal about the condition of your heart? Think about the actions of your life this week. What do your actions reveal about your heart? Do your words reveal a good heart that bringeth forth good things or an evil heart that bringeth forth evil things? Do your actions reveal a heart that bringeth forth defiling things or a heart that brings forth purity and obedience to God? And if your heart reveals, your life reveals a hard heart, an old heart, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to deceive yourself about your spiritual condition? Are you going to tell yourself that you're okay? Are you going to elevate your feelings above Scripture? Are you going to say, I know what the Bible says, but I really think I'm saved. I really know that I am. I know there's no real fruit or evidence of it, but trust me. I went to the altar. I was baptized. The preacher told me I was saved. My parents are Christians. I was raised in a church. I was raised in this church. I'm, I'm basically a good person. Pleading with you to reject all of those things this morning. Do not elevate your feelings over Scripture. Don't focus on how you feel about what God has said. Don't focus on what your parents have told you about whether or not you're saved. Don't focus on what culture tells you about whether or not you're a good person. Because on Judgment Day, they will not be there. God will not care about your feelings that you had today. 
Your parents will not be there to tell God how good you were. The culture will not be there to say, but compared to everyone else, wow, he was great. It will be you and God. And it will be God's word. And he will say, your heart revealed these things to you. Why did you not take it seriously? Scripture has got to be the standard. And Scripture never implies or teaches. Salvation is a prayer that is prayed some point in the past and has no impact on our day-to-day life. In fact, Scripture teaches exactly the opposite. Scripture says you must be born again. Scripture says you cannot follow Jesus unless you deny yourself daily and take up your cross. Scripture says, if you save your life by refusing to deny yourself and take up your cross, you lose your soul in the process. Scripture says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Scripture says Jesus saves people out of unrighteousness. He doesn't leave them in it. He saves them out of it and he washes them and he sanctifies them. Scripture says those who are saved by Jesus will live for Jesus. Scripture says those who are in Christ are a new creation and all old things have passed away and all things have become new. That's what salvation does. But that should make sense that salvation does that because think about what we're talking about. The great and awesome God of John 4 and Isaiah 6. Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6. He he cast off the glories of heaven. He came to earth as a person. He lived a a sinless life. He did great miracles. He taught wonderful things. And despite all the good he did, he was rejected by people. He was betrayed by one of his disciples. He was abandoned by the rest. Turned over to the Romans. Brutally beaten. Crucified. And while he was hanging on the cross, all of the punishment for all of our sins was placed upon him. He essentially took hell in our place. And after absorbing all of God's wrath against all of our sin, Jesus died. And then three days later, He rose again. And now He ever lives to make intercession for us. Honest and truly, does it make even a lick of sense to say, Jesus endured all of that to forgive me in my sins and leave me in my sins? Would the great God of the Bible truly do all of that not to make radical and deep changes in my life? Can we read what God said in Ezekiel about these changes and say those aren't deep and abiding and legitimate changes? Dear friend, if you think salvation leaves you in your sin exactly the same as you forefound, I propose to you, you do not understand the Bible. You do not understand God. You do not understand what Jesus did. And if you profess faith as a Christian, you do not understand the very basics of the religion you profess in your life. The great and awesome God of the Bible changes us deeply and eternally when we come to Him. When we read Scripture, and I'll close with this. The only people who came to Jesus and left unchanged are those who rejected Jesus. When people came to Christ and they received Him, they were different after. If we came to Jesus and left unchanged, it is not because Jesus thought we were just alright the way we were. 
It is because in the end we rejected Jesus. What does your life reveal about your heart and your spiritual condition? Dear friend, this morning, if your heart reveals, if your life reveals a hard, fleshy, a fleshy heart, you must take that seriously. You must not listen to your feelings. You must not listen to the lies of culture. You must let Scripture be the standard and say, I need to be born again. And if you have a loved one that professes faith and lives in the ways that we've seen that demonstrate an unregenerate heart, do not soothe your conscience by saying they're probably okay. You pray for their salvation. You acknowledge where they are. And you cry out to God to save them.